0: Revelation chapter 12 tonight. We're over halfway through our study of the book of Revelation. And tonight, as John sees this great sign in heaven, we are going to be talking about principles that literally span the panorama of salvation history. God is literally unveiling to John And then, obviously, writing it down so that we can benefit and profit from it, principles that literally span from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And so, I'd like to share these with you tonight. The chapter divides very nicely into three sections, so we're sort of going to tackle it that way, but I'm going to tackle the first section then the, actually the last section chronologically, and then end with the middle section, and I think you'll see why as we move through the passage tonight. So let's begin in chapter 12, verse 1. Then a great sign appeared in heaven. Now, as I said earlier, signs are given to grab our attention and for preparation, but signs emphasize also the deeds and details of future events that only the Lord could bring about in order that he is exalted in these things. So John sees a great sign that appears in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was screaming in labor pain, struggling to give birth. Stop there. The first principle that I see here in this passage is that we can trust God to keep his word or his promises. We sang about it. We can trust God to keep his word. Let me give you my perspective on what John is describing here. I believe that the woman he's describing is Israel, that the son is Jacob, that the woman is Rachel, and that the 12 stars are the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, this description is very similar to what the patriarch Joseph saw in his dream in Genesis 37. Now, there are other interpretations of this, but this is the one I have always landed on and felt comfortable with. And so I'm just sharing that with you tonight. You may have another interpretation of who the woman is, who the sun and moon and stars are, but the important thing is that God is being true to his word here. Why do I say that? Well, he talks in verse 2 about the woman uh, being pregnant and screaming in labor pains and struggling to give birth. All the way back when sin entered the world, God said to Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, this phrase. He said, speaking to the serpent, after the serpent deceived Adam and Eve, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring will attack your head and you will attack her offspring's heel. Genesis 3.15. In theological circles, this is known as the proto-evangelium which is simply a big word that means it's really the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. In fact, I will say this. I will make a bold declaration to you tonight. I believe that everything that happens in the Bible after Genesis 3.15 has something to do with Genesis 3.15. Everything. Literally, God is saying, I'm going to bring forth a redeemer to take care of this mess that's now happened because of the entrance of sin. And you, as my archenemy, the one who's always opposing me, you're going to seek all your career as the devil to try to mess up what my plan is. You're going to try to prevent this child from being born and redeeming mankind. And there's always going to be this cosmic conflict between my children and your children. Well, isn't that exactly what the rest of the Bible is all about? That's why, to me, Genesis 3.15 may be one of the very key verses, if not the key verse, in all of the Bible— And so what we are reading, even in Revelation chapter 12, is that God's true to his word. He is going to bring forth a redeemer, a Messiah that he promised. But God also said, Satan's not just going to sit back and let this happen without trying to destroy the line of the Messiah or cut the Messiah off before he can do what he needs to do in order to secure our redemption. So, notice verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, a huge red dragon. Who is a huge red dragon? Go down to verse 9. The huge red dragon is the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan. And we'll get back to that verse later in the message. This huge red dragon had seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadem crowns. We're going to talk a little bit more about this in in the coming weeks in Revelation, but one of the things that we have to understand as Christians in order to properly interpret the book of Revelation is Antichrist is both a power and influence that already exists in the world today, according to John. It is also going to be at one point in history a literal person who is the final world ruler, but it is also an embodiment of this political entity that's going to exist, that's going to sort of be run by the Antichrist, but also these nations are going to come together to form a confederacy that he's going to rule over and rule through the world. And I believe that's what's being described here, the the other sort of sub-rulers and nations that are going to be part of his... End time kingdom. Notice in verse 4, the dragon's tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. I believe this is speaking about when Lucifer fell, he took a third of the angels with him in their fall. Then the dragon stood before the woman, Israel, who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, I think we all then understand, oh, that was probably Herod, right? That Herod had all the male children killed because he was going to feel threatened by this other king of the Jews, and that Satan was behind all that. But if you go back we realize that that wasn't the first time Satan tried to corrupt the line of the Messiah or cut off the Messiah. All the way through the Old Testament, there were many times where uh, Satan was trying to cut off the line, Saul even trying to kill David, Cain even killing his brother Abel, going back that far. Even the sons of God having relations with the women of earth and this race of Nephilim being born was a way for Satan to try to corrupt the messianic line so that the redeemer couldn't come. This again was all laid out and foretold by God in Genesis 315, that there would be this constant conflict where Satan would try to do everything he could to either kill the Messiah before he could do what he was sent here to do or corrupt the line to where Messiah could not come in the first place. But notice verse 5. We not only can trust God to keep his word or keep his promises, verse 5 also reminds us of this principle, We can trust God to honor his son. Even when Jesus was being baptized, they heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And here, the woman gave birth to a son. Satan could not do what he wanted to do. It was a male child. And notice now, again, the panorama here. We go from him being born to all the way to the end to he's going to rule over the nations, which hasn't happened yet. But again, it's said in such a way that it is sure to happen because God said it, and therefore, there's nothing that can stop it. He is the unstoppable God. And therefore, everything that he says is going to happen is inevitably going to happen because there's no one greater, more powerful than him to be able to stop him, including his arch enemy, our archenemy, Satan himself. By the way, the word rule here is an interesting word. It means literally to shepherd. So I want you to keep your finger there when it says he's going to shepherd over all the nations and go back with me to Matthew's gospel, chapter 2 and verse 6. This isn't the only time in the New Testament where this reign of Christ is referred to him being the shepherd of the nations. Matthew, chapter 2, verse 6. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are in no way least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. We're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks, but when you begin to contrast the way God leads compared to the way Satan operates, the way the Antichrist is going to operate, the beast out of the sea, the way the false prophet operates, the beast out of the earth— You come to realize, oh, my goodness, why would anybody reject God, who is so beautiful and so gracious and so loving, and somehow be enamored and captivated by such cruel and ugly and and destructive forces like Satan and all of his minions? And yet, sad to say, much of the world will go after them instead of Christ. It does say back in Revelation 12, 5, that he will shepherd the nations with an iron rod or iron staff because during his thousand-year reign on the earth, he will defend his flock. Because remember, during the thousand-year millennial reign, not everyone who is a part of that is going to be a Christian, or be a Christ follower, or accept Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords. There will be many who enter and many who are born during the millennium who do not want any part of Christ. So even during the millennial reign that you and I are a part of on earth with the other saints, Christ will still have to protect and defend his people, and he will do so with an iron staff. Then he goes to verse 6, where not only can we trust God to keep his word and trust God to honor his son, but where we can trust God to care for his people. Remember, at the very beginning of this book, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation of God. This book unveils for us discloses to us who God is more and more. And and I've said to you before that for much of my early Christian life, I looked at the book of Revelation as primarily a book of prophecy. I have learned to embrace it more as a book of worship because almost on every page of the book of Revelation, there's worship because there is the revelation of who Jesus really is. And even on earth, if he's rejected and and, and not accepted, there is always a remnant that is worshiping him on earth, and there is certainly much worship going on in heaven throughout the book of Revelation. And Jesus is seen for who he really is. And we're getting, again, a further affirmation, if you will, of who our God is. He can be trusted to keep his word. God the Father can be trusted to honor his Son, and so therefore, when you and I honor the Son, God honors us, and we can trust him to take care of us. Notice verse 6. During the tribulation, she, the woman, Israel, will flee into the wilderness where a place has been made ready or prepared for her by God ahead of time so she could be taken care of, For the 1260 days, which is, I believe, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, when the Antichrist breaks his peace covenant or peace agreement with the nation of Israel, goes into the Holy of Holies, the abomination of desolation, I think that the Israelites then have to flee into this protected place that God has for them. This place will be a refuge for God's people during that last three and a half years, because the Antichrist, as we're gonna see in just a moment, is going to want to hunt them down and kill them, because they're not going to have the mark of the beast if they are God's people. And this verse reminds me of a couple things. One, if you go back up to the fact that God is ahead of time preparing this place somewhere in the wilderness of Judea where the Antichrist and his forces during the tribulation period will not be able to find him. And I just couldn't help but think about John 14, where ahead of time, what does Jesus say to his followers? Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you ahead of time from you being there. And if I go and prepare this place for you, I'm going to come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. God not only can be trusted to take care of us, God is always 10 billion steps ahead, right? He's he's on tomorrow before we are. That's why he said, you don't have to worry about tomorrow. Just worry about today because I'll take care of tomorrow when tomorrow comes, and I'm going to be there before you. Because I'm always preparing places and and preparing refuges and taking care of my people ahead of time, because I know what's coming and you don't. So just trust me. Trust me to take care of you. Trust me to protect you. Trust me to provide for you. And then when I thought about this place of refuge, I couldn't help but think of Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our strong refuge. He is truly our helper in times of trouble. See, God was going to be a refuge for his people during it because that's who God is. God's our refuge now. God has been our refuge this past year or so. He's our refuge our whole life, every moment of our life. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are set safely on high, Proverbs eighteen ten. God can be trusted not only to keep his word, not only to honor his son, but to take care of his people. And these are principles that literally cover the panorama of salvation history. This is who God has been from creation all the way to the very end. And this is who God always is and always will be because he's the God who is, who was, and who is to come. But now I want you to go over to verse 13 because verse 6 anticipates the dragon's rage that is described now in verses 13 through 17 of Revelation 12. See, we begin by seeing these words in verse 13. When the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Satan will concentrate his vengeance on Israel during the Great Tribulation. Why? Well, for one reason, I believe the church has already been raptured, okay? So the church, you and I, are not here during this time. So Satan is going to concentrate his efforts upon the other people of God, the people of God that now God has turned his attention back to during the tribulation period, that 70th week of Daniel, those seven years that were still hanging out there in history where God, again, could be true to his word, he said, I've got seven years out there that I'm going to return my focus and my attention back to Israel, and God promised in the Old Testament that the whole nation of Israel as a nation would come to know him again all of that's coming, but that's all part of that last week because the church now no longer is God's focus. We're in heaven. God is now returning his focus back to Israel. Satan has always hated Israel because they were the apple of God's eye. They are God's people, if you will, just how God hates Christians today for the same thing. So, notice this principle. Satan seeks the destruction of God's people. And that has been true based on Genesis 3.15 ever since then. Satan has always, whoever sides with God becomes an enemy of the devil, you see. Now again, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. The Bible tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from us because We have the Holy Spirit of God living in us, and we have a greater power through Christ than any power that Satan can throw at us, but we still need to respect our enemy and know, as I said a couple weeks ago, that if he had his way, you'd be dead. I'd be dead. Think of the book of Job. If it was up to Satan, he would kill immediately every Christian that was alive, if he could. But again, because he's accountable to God and because he is still under God's sovereignty, just like in the book of Job, he cannot do anything without God's permission. And that even what we're seeing through the book of Revelation and really through the rest of the Bible is that God allows Satan to be who he is actually to bring more glory to him. Because what we're even seeing in this one chapter in Revelation is that at every turn, Satan's attempts and Satan's attacks are always frustrated by God. He tried to kill the male child over and over again and couldn't do it. He tried to prevent Christ from going to the cross, couldn't do it. Tried to tempt Christ for 40 days in the wilderness and Christ was triumphant. He would not succumb to Satan's temptations. Throughout history, Satan has always tried to get one step ahead of God, and he doesn't even come close. At every turn, he is frustrated. So now notice verse 14. Israel will receive divine assistance throughout this three and a half years. So the next principle, then, after Satan seeks the destruction of God's people, is God delivers those who are his. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of their trials and to reserve the unrighteous to judgment, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. And listen, deliverance doesn't necessarily mean physical deliverance. There will be many of God's people who will be martyred and give up their lives, but they're still delivered because ultimately they overcome. Because Paul does say, right, to live as Christ and to die as a Christian is what? Gain. We don't lose anything if we give up our life for Christ on earth compared to what we're going to gain in heaven for all of eternity. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8:18, 8, I reckon, I consider, I count that the sufferings of this world can't even be compared to the glory that you and I will receive one day when we get there. So, the woman was given two wings of a giant eagle so that she could fly out into the wilderness to take to this place God prepared for her, which we've referenced, where she is taken care of. And I believe, from studying this, that Israel is taken care of here during these last three and a half years in this remote region, wherever God has it prepared, in a miraculous way, just like he did the Israelites when they left Egypt. They're they're so far out in what we call the boonies, that I believe that God may even miraculously either send food to them or, you know, do the manna thing again or something similar to that because they're not going to be near any kind of store or place just to go and get food. He's going to tuck them away, and I think he's going to miraculously take care of them, as only God can do. We've seen that over and over again in the Bible, whether, again, it's the children of Israel in the wilderness, whether it's Elijah and the widow of Zarephath and how God supplied their need, how it was Hagar out in the wilderness, and God was the only one that saw her, but he saw her. God knows how to take care of us, even if he has to do a miracle to do it. And that's why we can trust him, because God's the only one that could do that. And take care of us. Notice, she is taken care of away from the presence of the serpent for again, a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. Then the serpent spouted water like a river out of his mouth after the woman in an attempt to sweep her away by a flood. But the earth came to her rescue, and who controlled that? The Lord. The ground opened up and swallowed the river that the dragon had spewed from his mouth. So again, notice, the dragon became enraged at the woman and went away to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep God's commandments and hold to the testimony about Jesus. And the end of chapter 12 ends with simply the dragon sort of musing, standing on the sand of the seashore. And will Pick it up there next week as we enter into chapter 13. But again, notice, every attempt and attack by Satan is frustrated by God. Every time he tries to destroy Israel in mass or in whole, he can't do it. God always rescues. God always delivers. God always saves. Going back to even the Exodus story, here comes Pharaoh and his army. There's the Red Sea. They're cooked, right? There's no way out. Oh, no, not with God. God just parts the Red Sea and allows them to cross through on dry ground because there's nothing too hard for our God. Nothing is impossible for the Lord. This is who our God is, and this is why the book of Revelation needs to be read and needs to be studied and why it has a blessing at the very beginning for all those who read it and meditate on it and study it and share it and pass it on because it's showing who our God is more than anything else. Don't get caught up even as Christians with all the other characters in the book of Revelation more than you fall in love more and are more in awe and wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ the one who's over it all and in control of it all, and who's using all of these characters and all of these things to fulfill his plan and to bring him glory on this earth and in heaven one day. So with that, let's now go back to verse 7 and see these last three principles from the panorama of salvation history. And let me just review. In the first part of the chapter, we saw these three principles. We can trust God to keep his word, trust God to honor his son, trust God to care for his people. In the last passage of this chapter, we saw these principles. Satan will always seek the destruction of God's people, but we can always count on God to deliver those who are his. Now we come to verse 7. War broke out in heaven. That, that just seems like that shouldn't be, Right? In fact, there's even Christians like, wait a minute, there's, there's war in heaven? Yeah, one day there's going to be a sort of final war in heaven. Well, who, who's battling in heaven? Michael, who I love his name, who is like God? Again, even the name of Michael is like, is that, even God said it many times in the Old Testament, there is no one like me. I have no peer. I have no equal. There's no one besides me, above me. Any. There's no one like God. And that's what the name of Michael, the archangel. Who is like God? No one. And so Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Again, I figured a description of the devil. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But notice, the dragon was not strong enough to prevail. Once again, dragon lost. Satan frustrated. Next principle, remember that our enemy is a defeated foe. He was defeated on the cross when Jesus said it is finished. He's defeated throughout history. At every turn, Satan is a defeated foe. We do not fight for victory as Christians. We fight from victory. The victory has already been secured. And this is just another illustration that one day when this war breaks out, and notice, notice, God doesn't even have to get involved that Michael and his band of angels defeat Satan and his angels. That that shows you where Satan is. God is so far above them, he doesn't even need to get involved in the fight. And yet many times I think we put Satan on a much higher pedestal than we should, especially compared to God. He is a created being just like every other created being. Yes, we respect him. He's very powerful, he's supernatural, but he's still a created being. You and I have the uncreated God who lives in us. Let's not forget that. Don't ever forget that phrase the dragon was not strong enough to prevail. Therefore, there was no longer any place left in heaven for him and his angels. Again, many Christians raise that. Why is Satan there in the first place? Why does God allow Satan into heaven? Well, go back to the book of Job. Satan appears to God in heaven throughout history to be accountable. See, Satan, like all the other demonic beings, have to report to God. They are accountable to him. Therefore, he has an audience with them at times. But now, no longer. Satan is once and for all with all of his minions kicked out of heaven, no opportunity left for them once and for all. So notice verse 9. That huge dragon, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, was thrown down, by the way, with force to the earth. He was slammed down to the earth. And then you pick it up in verse 13. He doesn't like it. And now he's going to throw all of his rage onto Israel. By the way, verse 9 is all that you and I need to know about Satan. If there was one verse in the Bible that we could gain sort of Satanology from, this is it. In these four terms or four descriptions of Satan, you and I have pretty much everything we need to know about our archenemy. Notice, first, he's called here in the book of Revelation the dragon, the huge dragon, the red dragon. Every time in the book of Revelation that the dragon's mentioned, it is referring to Satan. Why does God refer to him that way? When you think of this term, it speaks of brutality. It speaks of ferociousness. Uh, It speaks of cruelty, and that's who our enemy is. He doesn't play fair. Unlike God, who is loving and kind and gracious, our enemy is pictured as a dragon. Second, he is called the ancient serpent in verse 9. What's that speak of? Well, it even says there, it reminds us of the garden. It reminds us that our enemy is a beguiler, that he is a deceiver if you will that he's a disguiser in fact in a couple of weeks we're going to see in the book of second corinthians where he can literally masquerade as an angel of light you see let's not forget that about our enemy then he's called the devil That word speaks about him not only being a divider, he wants to divide us from God and us from each other, but it also speaks about him being a slanderer and an accuser. We're going to see that later on in the passage. And then finally, he's called Satan. Simply, he's our archenemy. He is the adversary, okay? All those terms remind us of who he is and what he's all about. But again, he's a defeated foe. So, with all of that, verse 10 then, the next principle is, remember our salvation is a settled reality. Remember that our salvation is a settled reality. Those who confess the name of Christ are saved. The one who believes in Jesus is saved, period. Why is that important? Verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the ruling authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters, the one who makes accusations and charges them day and night before our God has been forcefully thrown down. This verse reminds us, we've been saved. And we've been given a kingdom. And no matter what our accuser says to us, no matter what charge he makes, our salvation is a settled reality. Paul said to the Ephesians, do you realize that from God's perspective, we are already raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms? Paul said to the Colossians in Colossians 1.10, He delivered us once and for all from the kingdom of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, period. Our salvation is a settled reality. I don't care how strong, how forceful our enemy speaks into your head and speaks into your heart and into your mind, tells you how awful you are and that you have no right to be saved and that, that, that you have, you know, all of that, all you have to say to your enemy, the accuser, is, I have accepted Christ as my Savior. My sins are forgiven once and for all. My salvation is secure in him no matter what, and It doesn't matter it's settled get behind me Satan and that's why these verses are in this passage in the context why context is so important when interpreting the Bible in the context of Satan being the accuser who accuses us day and night before our God the loud voice is reminding us salvation is settled Being part of his kingdom is settled. Two other things are settled, his power and his authority. As God's children, we've been given a power, not our own power, but a power like Paul talked about. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And no matter what our enemy says, the power in us is greater than his power. And that will never change. Anything that we, any, any territory we allow Satan to have in our life, it's because we give it up to him, not because we don't have the power to basically push back and resist him. And we have the authority in Christ as well. Even the Great Commission, even the early chapters of Acts, they were given great authority by God to go into all the world and make disciples, and that same authority has been given to you and I. It's settled We need to take that power and take that authority and live in what God has given to us. We are his children. We are the princes and princesses of God. And that is a settled reality that no matter what Satan accuses us of, no matter what he charges us of, what he slanders us with, we are still the children of God and always will be. So that leads me to my last point, and what a great way to end. The last principle, verse 11. Remember, our victory is through Christ and our personal faith in him. Remember, our victory is through Christ and our personal faith in him. They overcame him, the one who accuses us day and night before our God. They were victorious. They conquered. They prevailed by the blood of the Lamb. First, the only way we're victorious is through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Peter says, we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from our vain manner of life, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot and without blemish. And there is power in the blood of Jesus. But notice, even though I believe that the sacrifice of Christ could have saved every person who ever lived if they wanted to be saved, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that only those who put their personal faith in him achieve victory. That's why it's not just They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, but they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their personal testimony. You and I have to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Then we are victorious. Yes, all that Christ did, it will secure the victory as long as we trust in it. Listen to these verses out of 1 John. 1 John 5, 4, because everyone who has been fathered by God conquers the world. This is the conquering power that has conquered the world, our faith. Now, who is the person who has conquered the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 1 John 5, 4, 5, and 6. And I love this. You want to talk about challenging? Notice these people during the tribulation not only achieve victory through Christ and through their personal faith in him, it goes on to say, and they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Boy, there's a lot of Christians today These folks basically are saying we prefer to embrace God's will no matter what it costs us. Even if it means we have to die as a martyr during the tribulation, we will not bow to the Antichrist. We will not take his mark. We will go slaughter. Go ahead. Kill me. No wonder, then, verse 12 says, Therefore, you heavens, rejoice. Celebrate and all who reside in them, but woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil's coming down to you, and he's filled with terrible anger. He's in a state. He's in a mood because he knows that he only has a little time. Whew. Now, Satan, obviously, not God at all, But even Satan understands the signs of the times, and he understands even today that he doesn't have as much time as he used to. And he's going to really understand at this time in history he has very, very little time left. And so he's going to just, he's not going to hold back at all. He's going to throw it all in those last three and a half years of the tribulation. But here's what I want to leave us with tonight. Satan knows his time is short even now. And he is very much at work in our world today. So that means you and I, if our enemy knows the time, that means we as God's children need to know the time too. So leave Revelation, and I want to end with this. If you go with me to Romans chapter 13, I just thought this would be a great passage to end with tonight. Romans chapter 13 verses 11 through 14 Romans 13:11 through 14 This is how we should apply knowing the time. Paul says and do this loving your neighbor as yourself what he's just talked about because we know the time, or at least we should, that it is already the hour for us to awake from our sleep, for our salvation is now nearer than when we became believers. The night has advanced toward dawn. The day is near. So then we must lay aside the works of darkness and put on the weapons of light. Let us live decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in discord and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to arouse its desires. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you tonight that you've given us again encouragement, Lord, through the revelation of your Son and the revelation of your person as God. We have learned so many principles, Lord, that come from the panorama of salvation history that you can be trusted, God, to keep your word, trusted to honor your son, trusted to take care of your people, trusted to deliver your people, even when Satan wants to attack us, even when we're the objects of his rage and anger, because you reminded us tonight, God, that our enemy is a defeated foe. And that, God, our salvation is a settled reality. And that our victory has already been achieved through the great sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ and our personal faith in him. So, God, I pray tonight that we will leave here heads held up high, growing in our confidence, growing in our boldness as we live in these very strategic days on earth god would you strengthen your people continually through a greater and growing revelation of you through your word and through your spirit take us all home safely tonight or for those that were watching from home god give them good rest tonight And these things we ask in jesus name amen god bless you for being here we'll see you next week